Welcome to the podcast. A poll taken in mid-July indicated 77% of Massachusetts residents had a very favorable or somewhat favorable view of Governor Charlie Baker. That same poll found 81% of voters strongly or somewhat approved of his handling of the COVID-19 outbreak. With numbers like those, the governor is practically walking on water. But are those numbers warranted? And do they mask issues that the governor is failing to address? I'm Bruce Mole of Commonwealth Magazine, and with me today are two skeptics. Joan Vanaki is a columnist for the Boston Globe, and Ben Downing is a former state senator from the Berkshires who is now working for a solar power firm and someone many people discuss as a gubernatorial candidate in 2022. Welcome to both of you. Nice to be here. Great to be here, Bruce. Joan, let's, let's start with you, a fellow colleague in the news business here. What, how, how do you rate Governor Charlie Baker? How's he doing right now, do you think? Well, who am I to question the, um, you know, the opinions of the, of the people of Massachusetts? I mean, his favorability is, is like, oh, as you said, he walks on water. Um, and I think he has done a reasonably good job. Um, I think he, you know, he looks like he's in charge. He, you know, he looks like a manager. He keeps on saying he's data-driven. My issues with him are mainly in terms of his response to long-term care facilities and specifically what happened at the Holyoke Soldiers Home, where I think he there's accountability that he has not yet really embraced. Ben, how about you? Yeah, I think that Governor Baker has clearly done better than many other governors, many other leaders, certainly better uh, than our current president. But I don't think better than bad is good enough when it comes to this crisis. I think uh, I recently saw uh, Congressman Moulton say that Governor Baker has taken just about every step right, but about two weeks late. And I think that is a fair assessment. I think the governor has been too slow to move in response uh, to many of the troubling trends that we saw at the earlier stages of the crisis. Uh, and I fear he uh, is making uh, similar mistakes as we move forward now. So uh, I think certainly better than many other leaders at this time. Uh, but that shouldn't be the bar that we set or expect for public leaders. And Joan, um, I know you've written about this a little bit with the Holyoke Soldiers Home, but talk a little bit about your concern there. Right. My concern about Holyoke is, um, well, what happened in, during the week in March that led to, ultimately led to, I think, the deaths of at least 76 residents of the Holyoke Soldiers Home from COVID-19, the decisions that were made by, with under then Superintendent Bennett Walsh. So that's one moment in time. But my real concern is what happened four years before that put Bennett Walsh in charge of the Holyoke Soldiers Home, because it seems like it was a completely, you know, a, a decision ruled by politics, not ruled by his um, you know, ability to do the job or anything. And Governor Baker was the one who appointed him and signed off on that hiring. So they put someone in charge that their own report, the Mark Perlstein report found was unqualified and made terrible decisions. And he's never really owned the process that put that in place. You know, that report was also interesting in that um, Pearlstein interviewed the governor 
but never really recounted what he asked him or, or what the governor said. It was almost, uh, you know, the governor's held him up as someone who, and he did write a riveting report about what went wrong. And it was shocking in that respect. But when it came to the guy that hired him and asking an interview, sit down interview with him, you would have thought it would almost be a verbatim, here's what we said, here's what we talked about. But there was nothing. It was as if it was a blank slate. Exactly. I mean, I think that blank slate is, um, you know, he should fill in the blanks, quite honestly. Um, he interviews the governor of Massachusetts about what happened in terms of the hiring at that facility and what happened in the days that led up to um, what he described as just a horrendous situation for the people at that home. Yet there's nothing directly from Governor Baker. And, um, you know, why? Why? And Ben, let me ask you, um, you, I think we're quoting uh, Seth, Representative Moulton, about being two weeks late behind. And I guess I'm, I want to push back against that a little bit, because, I don't know, going back to the beginnings of this whole mm -hmm. issue, it was a very confusing time. I mean, Baker for a while didn't wear a mask and said, oh, I'm socially distancing. And then he flipped 180 degrees on that one and, and adopted masks and has been a huge advocate for them ever since. Um, now you could criticize him as being slow, but, but there, to be fair, for a person in that situation, there must be a ton of stuff coming at them and a lot of uncertainty and a lot of, you know, frankly, he's acknowledged that a lot of mistakes were made you know, along the way. You're learning all the time. It's, it's a little tough to hit him for being two weeks late, it seems to me. That seems, eh, maybe that's a good thing. You want to be two weeks late be, and not just always leading the pack. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's, it is fair now uh, to, um, uh, it, it's fair to say that it's easy to make the decision right now. It's easy to, to highlight the point right now. I do think that too often we see a, um, when the governor refers to data, uh, he is waiting for data um, and not accounting for the historical context, right? So we know that um, one, we had data coming from other countries as they were dealing with COVID and their outbreaks and what public health interventions uh, were protecting uh, populations uh, quickest, fastest. I also think uh, that we know that there are historically disadvantaged populations in Massachusetts that but for an intervention will be most exposed, whether those are long-term care facilities like Joan has pointed out, whether those are essential workers on the front line. Um, and I think that we need to be able to both balance the understandable caution, but also the, the context for, for where and how we are making decisions. So there has to be, um, I think, a degree of leadership and responsibility to know and understand that if things turn out as bad as they could and have, uh, that there are specific populations in our communities that are gonna be most directly impacted. So uh, again, yeah, it's easy with 2020 vision, um, but it's also important to, to have leadership that is making decision with those communities and their historical context in front of mind. Bruce, can I say something? Absolutely. Uh, sorry. I, on this one, I'm a little bit more sympathetic to your view on this, Bruce, because um, I can recall, I know that you've been to many Baker press conferences since, 
but the one where he declared the state of emergency was actually the last one that I went to because then we went into kind of shutdown and I've been on the third floor of my house ever since. Um, and even at that moment, I mean, I remember, you know, thinking, is this an overreaction? I mean, I mean, obviously, I don't have as much data as he has, and I'm not a scientist, and I don't have all that information, but there was all this confusing information. And it felt that he did make that decision. He, you know, we went into this lockdown. He, you know, took on the mask situation. Meanwhile, he's getting criticized from the business community. You know, we're losing jobs. I mean, they're just all these interests that are being balanced. And I mean, I think he did have, show a steady hand and steady the ship and do all the right things. If there was a, a lack of leadership, um, apart, aside from the nursing home situation, I think the administration has shown kind of a lack of leadership on the school issue. Like, where's the voice of the administration on what the various, you know, cities and towns should do about returning to school? That I feel like there's been a real void there, and I, I don't know the answer to that question. Yeah, and I think on that, on that front, Joan, right, you know, we've been left with 351 cities and towns, 289 school districts, all having to come up with their own plans. Uh, I was reading the Berkshire Eagle this morning and, and the Berkshire Hills Regional School District and Central Berkshire Regional School District and Pittsfield School District, all almost bordering on one another, two of them bordering on one another, having divergent plans just within the county. Um, and yes, I, I think you know the governor deserves credit uh, for the calm demeanor that he has brought to this, the focus on data. Um, I just think that there's got to be a little, we, we, uh, we haven't responded um, with the urgency that is required on some of these. And they're absolutely difficult decisions. Um, I, I do not uh, dispute that at all. But I think the lack of urgency in responding, even if it is a week or two, uh, is significant in the context uh, of the, the pandemic. Well, I would just throw in, uh, I could have my understanding of this incorrect, but on the schools, I think the state can advise and set guidelines, but they can't dictate to the school districts what approach they take. In other words, he can't say, I don't know why he can't say it, he can say whatever he wants about all sorts of other things, but my impression is that he can't say every school is going back to a hybrid opening or they're going back to in-person schooling. So he's do, they're doing this, you know, give us three options and think about it. And, and it, yeah, I, I, I'm sorry. I'm not yeah. looking, I'm not looking for him to, you know, dictate or tell people what they should do. I just feel like there really hasn't been a, a voice of the administration on the issue of schools, or maybe I just missed it. Something else I've noticed is that this whole pandemic has allowed information from the Baker administration, everything comes from the top now. Uh, it used to be, you know, cabinet secretaries would be floating around and you could interview them, you could talk to them. Now, everything pretty much comes from the governor, uh, which I find to be an amazing power that he has. Uh, I mean, it's good, it, it's a unified message, but it also means that there's no other information getting out. Um, so many issues going on in state government now, you just don't really have a clear picture unless he tells you what the picture is. Um, 
Ben, what's your reaction to that? Yeah, and I, I think that's kind of the point, right, that Joan is hitting on on uh, on the education issues, not to, to put words in your mouth, Joan, but I think there there is so much complexity to that. And I, I don't think there's a single person who can rightly say they know the exact right answer for one district, let alone for those 289 districts. Um, and especially when you have the governor having so many issues on his plate right now. I think there needs to be you know, clear communication, not just from the governor, but from throughout the administration, uh, two cities and towns, two school districts, and that there has to be more transparency on, on how they are making the decisions. When I've talked to friends who are teachers, who are working in school administration and others, that's one of the biggest questions that they have right now is, what what is the data that's driving the decision? What data should we be using? And I think there's even, uh, disputes among districts on what are the key health metrics they ought to be looking at to come up with their specific plan. So I, I think at some point that bottleneck uh, doesn't serve the the broader effort to reopen safely because that's what everyone wants. Um, and I think that that transparency is important. I think they've really controlled the information flow, as you say. And a case in point was even the, the reporting, the statistical reporting on COVID-19. I mean, Bruce, you kind of played a role in pushing them on more information about the nursing homes. Um, they really had to be pushed. And um, to the best of my knowledge, I mean, I haven't looked at the, um, the, the data in a, in a couple of days or whatever, but they still weren't giving really precise information. It was more than 10 or less than 10, unless they changed that in terms of actual cases, cases for example, at nursing homes. They really just controlled the data and controlled the message. And I guess, you know, that certainly helps Governor Baker. I don't know that it, it helps the citizens of Massachusetts necessarily. Let me ask you guys a, a more straight up political question about the governor. I'm sort of fascinated by, because the state party, the state Republican party has been taken over by Trumpers, uh, basically. And so the governor has sort of, moved away from that and uh, there's this pack that's been set up to support candidates he likes. Is he still a Republican in this state or is he morphing into the independent area and trying to become that type of candidate? What do you think? Well, I'll take a crack at that and then I'll, I'll listen to what Ben has to say on that one. Um, he's certainly not a Republican, a Trump Republican, um, but he still isn't, you know, like willing to engage that much with them, like to sort of take on Trump and really, you know, stake out territory, like a few other Republicans are doing, like um, Larry Hogan and, and, you know, some others. I mean, he's still, you know, like walking that Charlie Baker line, but he's definitely carved out. I don't know what he is right now. I mean, I guess he's more of an independent than anything else. But, you know, I think about it in terms of people say like, well, what if um, the Elizabeth Warren Senate seat opens up and say Governor Baker could appoint himself to be senator? Would that be acceptable to the electorate of Massachusetts? You know, could they see him in that role in Washington? Or would he then be seen as somebody that would still have to toe the line of the Republican Party? That to me would be sort of a test of, who he is and how 
we define him outside of his role as governor of Massachusetts right now. Yeah, adding to that, Bruce, right? Like, I think where Democrats have um, failed in the past uh, when debating Governor Baker on issues is too often diverting to the, the shiny object and trying to say, well, Donald Trump is a Republican and you're a Republican and somehow trying to tie Governor Baker directly to the president. Uh, Charlie Baker couldn't be further from uh, the president and we're all lucky for that. He's a good man. He's someone who I disagree with on policy issues. Um, I think where the focus ought to be uh, less on what party Governor Baker falls into is more on his actual record and not just his record during the pandemic, but the record that he has had in office uh, up until uh, the pandemic and through it as well. Right. And I think Governor Baker has had uh, little to no obstacles to enacting his agenda. Um, but what we haven't seen is an agenda that actually tackles the problems facing uh, citizens across Massachusetts every day. No governor has had the united control of the transportation agencies that Governor Baker has had for north of five years. And we can see little positive progress for folks, whether you're riding the blue line at the MBTA, which I now ride, or if I'm out in Pittsfield visiting with former constituents and friends, who are reliant on the BRTA or trying to get over their crumbling roads and bridges, right? So um, I think it's interesting to think about which party uh, Governor Baker falls or where he would uh, label himself politically at this point. I think far more important to folks across Massachusetts is to focus on his record. And I don't think that is a record uh, that ultimately stands up to tackling the big issues we need to, if we want to uh, recover equitably and be in a fairer, stronger position than we were when COVID found us. So it's interesting you bring up transportation because I, 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 I don't disagree with your notion that, that, well, I would disagree a little bit. There has been a lot of progress, for example, at the T uh, since, since the snowmageddon of 2015, but whether people actually see it yet is is a very valid question. I, I'm I'm not sure anybody really sees a dramatic change. And now with COVID, I got to say, a lot of the assumptions about what needs to be done, my whole mentality was that we were just a totally congested area. And how do you deal with that? Maybe we will be again, and I I, I assume we will be. But um, this has really thrown everything up in the air. Um, the T is a, a shell of itself. The commuter rail, no one rides it hardly. Um, you don't know whether the people that ride commuter rail are ever going to come back. So all these ambitious plans to make it into a subway-like system, who knows how that's going to happen. It's again, it's sort of a, a strange time. Uh, and I, I, I don't know, it's, it's again, it's, it's again, criticizing Baker for not maybe taking us that far, but at the same time, his cautious approach, go slow, maybe it's go slow, is, is also a way to, in uncertain times, it may work out okay. I'm, I'm not sure. Tell, tell me why you think, what he should be doing right now with transportation? What do you, what do you think? So I think the, the cautious go slow approach has limited the, the set of options that we have right now. I think the broader public, those who rode public transit in one form or another uh, every day before the pandemic, rightly have questions and concerns about whether or not 
that is uh, a safe alternative right now because they saw a system that was crumbling, that was not kept up, uh, where you had a, a decent chance of there being a significant issue on your line on any given day at any given moment. Um, and I think the work that needs to be done right now is quite frankly, rebuilding the public's confidence, faith, and trust in that system. Uh, and I think that is no small task given what is not just a failure by Governor Baker, but what is a 30 or 40 year failure across Massachusetts and of both parties to invest in that system. And I think there needs to be an ongoing public campaign right now to inform potential riders and past riders of the steps that the MBTA is taking, the steps that all the RTAs are taking to make sure that that is a safe alternative for riders across the state. Because to your point, Bruce, it absolutely will undermine any effort to expand transit, to improve transit, to tackle congestion. Um, to get to your point of, do we just end up being a congested area around Boston again? We absolutely will unless we address that concern, that trust and faith that riders don't have. And if we also don't address the other issue, which is over-reliance on greater Boston as the only economic hub of Massachusetts. That's the other part of, of that congestion debate that doesn't come up nearly enough. It's creating economic opportunities in gateway cities and surrounding economies. But the immediate, the immediate is a public campaign to show what the MBTA and other agencies are doing uh, to make sure that that is a safe alternative for everyone who can take advantage of it now. That has to be start one, and I don't think we've done enough there. Bruce, can I say something? I mean, 2020 obviously was supposed to be the year of transportation and the year of the T, and uh, you know, COVID-19 has completely kind of knocked uh, the wind out of that and sort of made people think about a reset. I was in Boston yesterday for the first time in a long time um, doing an in-person interview um, on the 40th floor of a law firm that was a ghost town and looking out and, you know, talking and people that I was talking to, like wondering, what is this city going to come back? You know, it, there are real questions now about the future and, and who's going to go back to those office towers. So that does tie into the T and tie into transportation. Maybe this would be a good time to start delivering on some of that transportation out to the suburbs in Western Mass if people are rethinking where they want to live and work. I mean, that would be one thing that you want to have a reset on. And one of um, you know Baker's weak points really is the T has been a weak point. Yes, he finally came around and came around to saying that he was going to put in money, but he won't get on the thing. Like if ever there was a time to show that something's safe, like why not get on with your mask on the T or the commuter rail and say, folks, it's safe. This is what we're doing. But he calls that virtue signaling. Um, I call that leadership. And for some reason, he just, you know, he, he gets very defensive on things like that. The same way he gets defensive when you ask him, well, what about the Holyoke Soldiers Home? Like, why, why isn't it your responsibility? Why doesn't Mary Lou Sutters have some responsibility for this? Like, what about the RMV? Why wasn't that on your watch? Why is it just a lower level person who takes the fall? Like, what about the state police? They answer to you. Why aren't you accountable? For whatever the reason, I, I attribute it, he's just like a, his, the fact that he's tall lets him 
get away with things that would, you know, that would hit somebody not quite as tall. And to me, that's the frustrating thing about him because he has so much political capital. You started out by talking about his, how much support he has in the public. With that much political capital, if he could just sort of step and say, you know what, this one's on me. That's what I'm waiting to hear from him more than, you know, some big policy thing. And, and to the points that Joan was making, Bruce, right? Like, and to your question on, on transportation and where we go here, right? As much as it is difficult, as much as we don't know what the next two, three, four, five years are going to look like with hopefully a, a vaccine, the deployment of that vaccine, how the public reacts to all of that and how that changes the nature of work. We also can't, can't just ignore the broader world that we're all trying to operate in here in that you know, climate change is real and the science is driving us to act. And the biggest sector that we have to tackle is the transportation sector when it comes to emissions. And so while it might be more comfortable for all of us to sit in our cars, that is not a sustainable solution. And it's on public leaders to come up with a solution that not only responds to the public's understandable questions, but also provides solutions that will actually both power the economy and uh, address our transportation issues. We can do all that. And to, to Joan's point, who better to than someone with the highest in the nation approval ratings and all of that political capital? If not for that, then for what? And one last question to both of you. Um, so I've watched the governor and lieutenant governor at many of these press conferences they have. And uh, I've been able to watch that they actually do have quite a partnership and he appears to include her in just about everything he does. Is he going to run for governor again? Joan, what do you think? Oh, Bruce, you have to hit me with the hard one. I, I do think that Karen Polito is a very interesting presence at those press conferences. She is, I hope this doesn't sound sexist, but the lady in waiting, um, you know, standing there and coming to the podium and saying her thing and giving it back to Governor Baker. Um, and he does seem, is he ready to hand it off? I don't know, but he looks like he's setting her up for the handoff. Ben, that's, what do you not, think? that's not a yes or no answer, but hey. That, that's fine, that's fine. What do you think, Ben? Yeah, I, uh, if, if 2020 has taught me anything, it's to stay out of the prediction business in, <laughs> in all cases. Uh, I think regardless of if Governor Baker runs, if Lieutenant Governor Polito runs, uh, I think what we need to have in Massachusetts is a debate about how we're actually going to recover from uh, the COVID recession and how we're going to make Massachusetts fairer and stronger uh, so that we can actually learn the lessons from who has been hit most directly uh, by the pandemic, communities of color, disadvantaged communities, uh, poorer communities, how we can actually make us fairer and stronger so that if and when another, uh, another shock like this comes, uh, we're able to bear the brunt of it much better than we have thus far. And I'll throw in my two cents. I cannot read this, this situation well at all. The governor seems more engaged, more interested in his job than ever. But like Joan says, he also seems like he's getting ready to hand it off. Um, I cannot tell. Uh, I just cannot tell. And with that, I want to thank Joan Vanaki and Ben Downing for joining me today. And to our listeners, we'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>